Hi, I'm Barb Sterner, and this is FEMA Podcast. In Iowa, in the summer of 2008, uh, the state experienced uh, what some are calling a season of disaster. Tornadoes, severe storms, flooding that really lasted throughout much of the summer. One of the hard-hit areas was the University of Iowa campus in Iowa City. And today, we're going to be talking with Rod Lennertz, who is the university's architect and senior vice president of finance and operations. Rod, welcome. Thank you very much, Barb. So tell us a little bit about what the University of Iowa campus looks like and then follow up with what happened to you in the summer of 2008. The campus at the University of Iowa, which was founded in 1847, is um, a campus marked by the river, the Iowa River, which cuts through the campus, and then two bluffs of about 70 feet in height on either side of that river that contain both halves of, of our campus. And um, it was originally developed as the state was developed. 59 days after the state of Iowa became a state, the university was dedicated on the east banks of the Iowa River. Over time, as we moved into the 1900s, space was of a premium. The state helped uh, provide land on the west side of the river. And since that time, we've developed in both directions. Uh, we have 33,000 students on our campus. Uh, we have a major hospital and teaching hospital on our campus as well. And from an academic perspective, we are noted for many programs as all of our peers are, but I would say most noted for our medicine and for our arts, uh, which include the full range of arts highlighted by our writing programs. The Writers Workshop, for instance, the number one creative writing program in the country, and what we would call the Writers University is the University of Iowa. So summer of 2008, a lot of uh, perfect storm kind of of weather started in northern Iowa. That water came down the Cedar River watershed, but many of Iowa's other rivers also rose, spilled out of their banks. The Iowa River was one. Tell us what happened to the, the university campus when that flooding started. The tale of the flood of 2008 uh, was unique, yes, to the University of Iowa, but to all of eastern Iowa. At the time, the fifth largest disaster in U.S. history, a natural disaster, with the tributaries um, feeding both the Cedar River and the Iowa River, uh, reaching all the way into Minnesota. And it was primarily wet weather and late freezes uh, up in southern Minnesota and northern Iowa that led to both rivers flooding. Um, our neighbor to the north, Cedar Rapids, has the Cedar River running directly through it. That was a case of flash flooding. Ours was a case of slow and, and um, tumultuous flooding that led from the Coralville Reservoir, a, a dam that exists seven miles north of the University of Iowa campus. As water rose in the spring of 2008, eventually the dam was uh, topped over and reached heights of five and a half feet over the top of the dam at its height when the flood crested on June 15, 2008. So the University of Iowa was given some level of time to prepare because the because the reservoir was containing some of the water that was on its way to our campus but ultimately that also meant that as the river crested 
the reservoir had to get back down to safe level, so we continued to see the maximum amount of water out of the reservoir for weeks after the flood. So we remained challenged not only by the immensity of a flood that was 40% higher than the previous record in 1993, but also a flood situation that would last a better part of a month in advance of the largest class in the history of our campus coming that August. So what did you do in advance uh, to prepare and, and how did it work? Actually, after the 1993 flood, which created $6 million in damage to our campus compared to the $700 million impact of 2008, we had amassed and begun an annual flood emergency response plan. And in fact, ironically, the flood response plan we had uh, enacted in 2008 received awards for it being executed in accordance uh, with all of the plans and successfully enacted. Uh, however, with the uh, flood being 40% higher than any of us had seen before, it was not a flood protection method that was going to protect the campus. And so even though it was a, a, awarded, we then saw the campus lost on Thursday, June 12th, when those uh, sandbag walls were overtopped on both sides of the river and water coming from behind the sandbag walls up through the grounds, to completely saturated grounds and then storm water backups um, that were occurring at the time. So what we did was prepare for a flood that we thought would be uh, akin to the worst we'd seen before, which was a 100-year flood. What we got was a 500-year flood uh, and um, a campus that, that uh, could not protect itself from it at the time. From a, a land size, how much of the campus was impacted by that flood? Mm -hmm. Well, we are fortunate on one level in that the 70-foot bluffs that bridge both sides of the river protected the uplands. Uh, however, many of our original buildings and class buildings were along the, the um, river corridor. And as such, we had a sixth of our campus was, um, was closed due to the flood. We lost 24% of our general assignment classrooms uh, during the flood. All but one of the several bridges across the Iowa River, which serves not only the University of Iowa, but all of the Iowa City area, uh, were closed with water overtopping those bridges. Physically, the campus was cut off, and um, again, roughly a sixth of the campus square footage closed uh, due to impacts from the flood. How many buildings were flooded? We had 22 major buildings flooded. Uh, there were other uh, minor, less um, critical buildings, but 22 major buildings were flooded. Um, of those 22 buildings, two of them were deemed by FEMA to exceed the 50% rule of damage and led to replacement of those buildings. Uh, our original art and art history building built in 1936 and then added to with additions over the decades that followed. And then our Performing Arts Center and School of Music building, Hancher, Voxman, Clap is what it's referred to, Hancher. Uh, auditorium, our Performing Arts Center, and then Voxman is our School of Music. In, in the case of Hancher, Voxman, Clap, the size of that building, 300,000 square feet, led to a realization by both uh, our campus officials as well as FEMA that it could not be replaced on one site. There wasn't a site that could, could take a building of that size. As such, though we lost two buildings, three buildings became the replacement. Uh, we replaced the Performing Arts Center on its own and the School of Music on its own because together they, there was no place for those two to fit onto a campus and be high and dry and protected from future flooding risks. So Performing Arts uh, Complex was one of those, one set of those buildings damaged. 
what were some of the other ones? Like what kind of functions were going on in those? Yeah, the other buildings were primarily academic buildings related, yes, to the arts, but also uh, general assignment classroom buildings in our College of Liberal Arts and Sciences or journalism building was flooded. Our main library received some flooding from underneath. It was actually uh, elevator pits that had high hydrostatic pressure from underneath that led to flooding from that direction. We had utility tunnels. We have utility tunnels, uh, roughly three miles of them underneath our campus serving uh, the steam and chilled water needs of our campus. Um, those Many of those tunnels became rivers themselves and in fact began to flood parts of the campus that would have not uh, otherwise flooded by over uh, overground water. Uh, we also lost our power plant, our single power plant that serves all the steam for our campus, powers half of the chilled water on our campus. That was built in 1929 along the banks of the Iowa River. Uh, our power plant officials backed out of that building when it had 22 feet of standing water and at that point the campus went dark uh, in that second week of June 2008. How did you tackle the recovery? Because obviously this is a pretty significant impact uh, to the campus. Uh, you're trying to keep school open or, or have school open for the fall semester, and yet you have all this work to do to figure out what do we replace first and, and how, do, how do the repair goes. Can you tell us a little bit how that went? The summer of 2008 was a dizzying summer for all of us. There was a mad dash to get the campus back on its two feet. As I mentioned, the power plant had been lost, so we had no steam, no chilled water on the campus. Immediately afterwards, we started to build two temporary boilers out of kits and parts from all over the country. The National Guard bringing those parts across flooded Interstate 80 when the, when the Interstate 80 was closed due to impacts of the flood. Literally, the National Guard was ushering semis through the water to get those parts to our campus so our uh, utilities folks could begin to build, if you will, lean-to uh, power plants that would allow the east and west sides of the river to begin to breathe again. The day after the crest of the flood, our president, Sally Mason, announced that the campus would be back on line within 10 days to restart summer classes. This was a critical statement. It, it did take uh, our breath back a bit. However, we knew the statement was coming. Had we not reestablished summer classes within 10 days, we would have lost the whole summer and uh, that would have set students who are here for the summer back in their academic pursuits to be able to finish school in four years uh, and the um, impacts to the campus from the business interruption perspective would have been massive. So we started an immediate cleanup after the flood to be able to get enough classes online to start classes during the summer, a lighter load, but then also race to um, Re recover enough of the campus to start the fall semester with the largest class in our history. Unlike some other universities who saw who have seen major disasters, we saw no uh, decrease in students and in fact had record student enrollments the next three years after the flood, which is great and shows the perseverance of, of our students and their families, but also put additional pressure on us. One of the buildings that was lost was our largest residence hall. We had about a month and a half to be able to recover a thousand bed residence hall for those students to come back. We um, had a large big box hardware store, a Menards hardware store had moved to a new location leaving an empty building at the south part of Iowa City. Within one month we turned that 125,000 square foot building into our new 
or a temporary school of art and art history and move the entire department to a former big box uh, hardware store. The School of Music, uh, the other program that was really decimated by the flood, scattered to the four winds, more than 15 locations in and around Iowa City, practicing in apartments, churches, any office buildings, anything they could find for that first year. And then during the next year, after we were able to get the campus on, uh, on its two feet again, and then get the power plant recovered by November 1st. Had, it, had we not been able to recover the power plant, we would have had to shut the campus down again because the cooling, or rather the heating season was starting. We were able three days short of that to recover the power plant and start our steam to the rest of the campus. And then started the longer recovery where we had about a year of making things right that weren't working, like having drummers practice in an apartment next to the flute players doesn't work you can hear right through the walls so we established um, more um, sustainable temporary locations for music and other programs over the next year and then that set us into the permanent recovery those 22 buildings being recovered protected and or replaced over what ended up being an eight-year period you talked a lot about students. How did the students and faculty react to not only what happened to the campus, but all the changes upcoming? Were they on board mostly? Well, they had no choice, but it was remarkable, the perseverance by students and by faculty and our staff. We had records that showed that only one student didn't attend the University of Iowa after committing here because of impacts from the flood. And um, the challenges in the arts programs were immense, but faculty were patient. Our director of the School of Music was a trombone, a trombone player, and it was fitting. That's the kind of personality it took to, to recover and survive from the flood. But everybody worked together, and I think because of that, we had a unified purpose to recover this campus and um, emerge from the flood. And with everyone together and with good communication, we were able to work our way through the difficulties. What were some of the leadership um, opportunities and challenges you saw in not only dealing with the flood, but more specifically the recovery and looking at ways to better protect the campus? Because as you said, with the river running through yep. the middle of it, you know, there, there may be another time. So. Yeah, the Iowa River is what makes our campus special. And interestingly enough, uh, we have emerged from the flood and are turning our attention to the river as a true amenity to the campus. And we and our surrounding communities are partnering on efforts to do that, which is a, a great reward from the perseverance. At the time, uh, we didn't, during the recovery, we didn't have nearly as, as um, a friendly relationship with the river. I would say at the beginning, uh, communication, as is the case in every avenue in life, communication was everything. And as, as hard as we tried, there were gaps in communication or an understanding of that communication at the beginning. But we remained vigilant. We had uh, daily news briefings. We had experts on top of experts telling uh, folks and knowing where they would be for folks to ask them questions. And in the end, we were able to work through that very, very difficult first summer and get to a better place where communication and a website that was uh, ground uh, zero for our communications effort became um, a really critical part of our recovery. Then came working with FEMA, working with Iowa Homeland Security to protect these buildings uh, because they still remain, many of them, right along the banks of the Iowa River but are now protected in a system that is a whole different level than what we protected prior to 2008. We're very proud of 
working with our Iowa Flood Center. We have the number one rated hydraulics institute in the entire country. They uh, amassed their teams immediately as, as the Iowa Flood Center and have served not only the University of Iowa and Iowa City and the surrounding communities, but all of Iowa, all of the world in flood um, flood protection uh, expertise. It's been a remarkable group to work with. And they became partners with us as well in, in recovering the campus, protecting the buildings. And we have every building is its own story in protection, some permanent, some operational. But uh, each has what I would say is a confidence building protection against future flooding that um, we fully stand behind and are, are proud to show on our campus. What would be some examples of the protection that you've done? Sure. So the Iowa Memorial Union, our student union, uh, was taken out by the flood, uh, the entire student floor inundated. Uh, ultimately, the protection of that building is a flood wall that is as high as 10 feet uh, tall along the banks of the Iowa River. It's integrated into the architecture of the 1925 building. Actually, the top of that flood wall serves as an outdoor plaza that, that adds to the use of the building um, in, in the long term. Uh, noted architecture along the river. We've got uh, really remarkable architecture on our campus, much of it near or along the river. Our art building west designed by Stephen Hull and our Iowa Advanced Technologies building designed by Frank Geary are two um, nationally, internationally renowned buildings and designs. Both of those are protected by what they call a, what we call a, an invisible flood wall system. At Art Building West, it's a foundation that sits around the building, around the site. The building is perched over a pond that was a former quarry, and the entire 900 feet of that site is surrounded by a subgrade foundation that allows us to then insert a combination of metal posts and aluminum panels and in and we've tested it in 2014 and the, the flood threats of 2013 and 14 we can amass a 12 foot tall protective wall around the entire site within 18 hours the same for uh, Frank Erie's IATL building those are the two buildings where we enact that measure other ones are hardening the lower levels we have a boathouse for our intercollegiate athletic crew uh, rowing program that has to be close to the river in that case we change the design to actually welcome the water in and harden the surfaces that can be flooded so that they're cleaned rather than repaired and then the flood doors open and let the water out immediately so there's a different story for every building but where we could we'd get those buildings up and above the water's level and that's what we did with the replacement buildings I was just gonna say Hancher is an example it, it that was moved but also elevated is that correct yeah so Hancher was relocated from its place when that building was flooded the water was 35 feet deep in the in the building because we had water a foot and a half over the stage and up to row O in the seating bowl and then the orchestra pits and the mechanical units uh, existed in floors below that ultimately we ro relocated the building to a site relatively close to the original site but up a hill and so ultimately the building sits protected at about eight feet above the flood that we had previously and in working with FEMA and our flood center it's clear that even a foot of water higher on our campus the dispersion throughout the county becomes extreme so so eight feet is plenty high, but we don't trust anything. We do also have a, a, a road right in front of between the river and the New Hancher, and we can begin to use HESCO barriers and other methods of protection should it ever come to a point of needing that, though we certainly, and FEMA certainly doesn't believe that will ever be needed. Clearly, there have been a lot of lessons learned, 
What advice would you have for other communities, other institutions, with some of those top five, let's say, lessons learned as a result of this? First of all, uh, we've had a lot of opportunities to visit with other universities and communities um, during the eight years of our recovery and then in these two years post the physical recovery of our campus. As we have told many of our campuses uh, that we know, the peers and those we work with, if you can see water from your campus, protect yourself from that water. What we experienced we could have never imagined. Uh, the the uh, extreme nature of the 2008 flood compared to anything that had happened before was not something we would have protected from before that. Uh, we've had campuses visit our campus. We've had uh, communities call on us when they flooded. The Iowa Flood Center has served as a resource on, on that as well. It's starting fast is the first thing. One, have a protection plan in place, which we now have and we update every single year, but have that plan in place. Practice it enough to know that you can put it into play. Make sure you know what you do with your public. One of the things that we changed in 2008, we had as many as three to 4,000 volunteers on our campus at a time. We didn't call for them. They came, which was inspiring, but also could be dangerous. We had not one injury with all of the little kids to elderly trying to help with power equipment around, moving sandbags around, no one injured. And I would I would say that was fortunate and, and lucky. In 2013, when we unfurled our new plan, when we had the threat, we had um, no volunteers. Everything was done by either university staff or by contractors uh, ready to do the work. There was very little risk. We've automated our recovery system to a point where it happens automatically, it happens quickly, and then those volunteers can go to the communities that surround us who do still need that help when, when the time comes. And we can spend our time helping the communities as well. So that's that's an important part of it. I would say get involved with and engage FEMA immediately. And what I mean by that is our first building that we lost was the residence hall, Mayflower Residence Hall. Knowing that we had to recover that in too short a time, we were literally having contractors wading into water to remove mechanical equipment so that when the water would recede enough, they could simply insert new things. That was the only way to get it done. We were then told by FEMA, you're working ahead of us at that point. We were doing this work in the days after the, fl after the flood. I think getting engaged with FEMA right away to understand the importance of funding eligibility. You want to, as a victim of a natural disaster, maximize your federal funding eligibility. And the only way to do that is to work closely with FEMA. And in our case, work closely with Iowa Homeland Security. Not every state is the same on that front. We have a great team, a great experience team, and more folks than maybe some states do. So working with both those two parties is a critically important part of making sure the first steps, which are the important steps, are taken correctly. Then have your team set up so they can survive the run of eight years. We were told by the mass, uh, by the size of our, our flood that it would take a decade to recover. In the end, we recovered in eight years, and I would say the perseverance and hard drive by those through our university community helped us early. We had talked before the interview, we put together a team, a flood a core flood team, which was only four or five of us put together to take care of the many matters that would occur on campus, to strategize on campus, but then also work as the go-betweens with FEMA, with Iowa Homeland Security. 
we met once a week, every week during the recovery to strategize and figure out what the next best steps were. We stopped that team. We can come back together if we need to. We stopped that team after about 430 meetings and um, about nine years into our flood recovery. Of course, the closeout process and the audit process related to the related to the undertaking are still ongoing. So while most of the University of Iowa and the state believe we're recovered, with with exception of a of a museum which did not end up getting federal funding, so we're doing that on our own, and we'll start construction this fall on that project. Um, we're physically recovered, but there's still a lot of paperwork to go. So record keeping is critically important. FEMA came and reviewed our record keeping, our project management system called Build UI. And it was a homegrown system for all the projects we do on our campus. It became the holding place for all record keeping related to the projects of the recovery, hundreds of project worksheets. FEMA recorded it as a best practice for anyone who would head in that direction. We've now made it web-based. It's even improved since when we first started working with FEMA. But having that kind of um, careful record keeping electronic and paper so that when questions are asked both during and then after during the audit period you have what you need and we had a great group of teams in risk management uh, Susan Klatt who is our our budget officer uh, constant steadily working on making along with everything else she's doing working on making sure the records and the go-between for FEMA and Iowa Homeland Security is consistent and uh, conservative. We, we never stepped beyond our bounds in trying to get more than we felt we were owed. And I think that conservative approach served us well through the recovery. We didn't have difficult questions to answer. We were answering them ourselves before we even started into the directions we headed. Because at a flood disaster of roughly $700 million, we had no choice on our service to the state to maximize um, federal uh, federal funding eligibility and the way to do that on our part was to be careful, be conservative and, and uh, scrutinize ourselves before we headed in. Rod, thank you. It's been fascinating. Congratulations on you know the recovery and more importantly the protection that you've added for the university. Uh, we hope you don't need it but if you do um, we're, we're glad that you have it. For those listening, we've linked this episode on our FEMA Facebook page and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a FEMA podcast topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, please visit fema.gov backslash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Mm-hmm.